0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And today I'm delighted to say I'm in conversation with the mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. Uh, We'll be talking uh, to Andy about a range of things. I mean, his political career is extraordinary. He looks so young, I think, as I say in the conversation, but um, I first knew him when he was a special advisor. Uh, at the start of the whole New Labour era in 1997. He was a special advisor to the Culture Secretary, Chris Smith, then had an astonishing uh, career at Westminster, several cabinet posts, then made the big call uh, to go for uh, being the mayor of Greater Manchester. And uh, he therefore, just in his career, reflects so many of the things we all talk about on this uh, podcast together. You know, where power lies, how you use power, whether we are closer now to 1997 uh, or is this a different period altogether, as I think, and well, you'll have to hear what Andy Burnham uh, has to say about all of that. Uh, Just before we go to our conversation, the usual Assembly notice The live shows kick off uh, pretty soon now, and there will be tickets where you can get the tickets on the blurb for the podcast. Uh, Birmingham March the 21st, though that's sold out at the 1000 Trades Club, I think it is. Uh, King's Place, first one of the year on March the 23rd. By the way, these all coincide around what's going to be one of the epic moments of this year, the budget uh, with that Tory parliamentary party, parts of it, you know, the Trussites and others aching for tax cuts. I shouldn't call them Trussites. It elevates her too much. Anyway, for my view on trusts last week's uh the podcast earlier this week um yeah so yeah king's place march the 23rd belfast march the 26th at the black box at hill street which i'm told is a great venue i think i actually have been there before the rope tackle in Shoreham march the 29th the witham at barnard castle on april the 1st and the old market theater in brighton april the 24th put all the uh details on the blurb for the podcast but now Over to our conversation with uh, Andy Burnham. Andy Burnham, thanks so much for joining us. Could I begin by asking you to sort of... One of the interesting things is how the hell you measure power in the United Kingdom. And you very unusually uh, have been a cabinet minister and did many other roles at Westminster and are now a mayor. Obviously, Johnson went the other way and no one else has quite had these experiences. Do you feel... This platform gives you more, I don't know, influence, but less power than being a Cabinet Minister. Having gone through all these different experiences, what's your assessment of your current role as Mayor compared to what seems anyway like very important roles, Health Secretary, Chief Secretary at the
1: Treasury and so on? It's a really good question, Stephen. It's one I do think about uh, quite a lot, you know, was my old role in Westminster, better, uh, more enjoyable than the, ones got, the one I've got now. But it, I would say not. You know, I think this role is, is the one that I've certainly enjoyed the most doing. And, and I would say potentially has more power. I say potentially because perhaps it all hasn't come through yet. But it's because the starting point of a mayoral position is different from a cabinet position. And what I mean by that, it's a, a place-first approach. You know, that's what you have to do as a mayor. You have to put the place first. You always have to be conscious that people who perhaps vote for other parties at a general election lend you their support at a a mayoral election. And I think because of that, the role has a much greater sense of legitimacy uh, and authenticity, I, I would say, than the sort of party first roles of Westminster, where, you know, people are... Just seeing that everything through that lens, whereas here you you are, if you're to do this job properly, actually you're required to do it differently.
0: So interesting, isn't it? That uh, line of accountability is very clear for you now. It's you and your electorate at Westminster. You know who is it that to the prime minister to the party? It, it's more complicated, isn't it? E-
1: exactly, and that's why I think sometimes in Westminster people kind of misread uh, devolution. You know, they think. You should be towing the line and you know doing the usual things, but actually that that would be to misunderstand the role that you are in. I think the reason why labour got into difficulties in Scotland in the early days of devolution there was because this perception of a branch office sort of took took hold that people were taking orders from from Westminster that for me if if, if that's the kind of way you go about this role, you, you may as well not bother because the legitimacy comes from. The people and the place, and you have to fearlessly, in my view, represent uh their interests and and advocate for them and I, If you remember in the pandemic, Steve you know when we were having that whole debate about tier three when you know Grace Monster was having a pretty miserable time in the second half of two thousand twenty you know it, it was my job to speak completely uh fearlessly for the place which i did and I just don't think people in Whitehall understood it or, or were kind of used to it. But, but that is the role. The north of England has never had political roles that can do that. And when, when finally we had them and there was a moment when it needed to be used to play something back to Whitehall, I don't think, I don't think they liked it very, very much.
0: Yeah, it was almost cinematic seeing you there putting a case for your area. Um, to Whitehall. It was it was extraordinary. I mean, what was clear, you had a platform. I mean, whether they listened uh, was a, another issue.
1: But boy, did you have a platform. Yeah, I think, they, I think they did in the end. But it was interesting how immediately they tried to sort of position what I was doing in the usual Westminster sort of uh, frame, you know, that this was me sort of play acting or, you know, kind of making up a, a, a text that I'd received. And I was like kind of over-dramatising. It, it wasn't any of that. We'd been through two weeks of behind-the-scenes negotiations with them. They weren't listening in those behind-the-scenes negotiations. So I um, realised that I, you know, something else was going to have to be needed. It was interesting, actually. Though they didn't necessarily, if you like, appear to be listening to me, it was when London went into what was then Tier 2 two days later and they realised that there was going to have to be funding given uh, there that they then conceded that an 80% furlough had to be made available to people uh, who were going into tier three in the north. So, yeah, it was an interesting, uh, interesting moment. Yeah, and very, very powerful. Um, before we explore what you were doing with your current
0: powers, I interviewed uh, Lisa Andy the other week, uh, who said, as you know, uh, because it's, it's sort of been one of the themes of the year so far for Labour at Westminster, that uh, Labour government would uh, give away power, uh, in a way that is without precedent. Uh, it is it, it, it is on a different scale than anything contemplated before. Now, if that were to happen, what are you telling them that you need in terms of that apparent historic giveaway of power?
1: Well, I, I'm really encouraged um, by what Lisa Nandy is saying at the moment. She gave a terrific speech recently at the uh, Convention of the North I'm encouraged because Labour's been a bit late to this, if I'm honest. You know, the the, the English devolution issue is kind of it, it's the party has not known at times uh, or looked as though it's not fully known what to do about it. But it's now clearly moving into a different phase following Gordon Brown's uh, review. And I think the way to make this country work better is to is not just to sort of dip your toe, but to fully go with it. You know, if if you think about it this way, Steve, I think in the 21st century, change will be driven more from the bottom up by cities. And if you compare Britain to countries around the world, what, what you will find is that our cities are dramatically under underpowered, if you like, when it comes to, to, to driving some of the change that we need to see in housing or in transport. And I think my advice to Lisa and, and the party would be, don't just sort of kind of become lukewarm and a bit you know warmer you've got to kind of embrace devolution in everything that it that it means you know which is really freeing up areas to um to do more for themselves actually what that would do is create a much healthier political culture within the country you know I think a sense of greater agency at local level will will kind of combat that kind of sense of done to and the alienation that comes that comes from that so I would say you know it's, this is working. And actually, the devolution we're seeing in England, I would say, is superior to what's going on in Scotland, where powers have been hoovered up to the Holyrood level. And there's a sort of same Westminster approach there where it's all national and, you know, there isn't there isn't that rooting of power at the local level. I think going from the bottom up uh, in the 21st century is, is where the most exciting change will happen. And we shouldn't just dip our toe. We should we should sort of jump, jump straight in. So as mayor of uh, Greater Manchester
0: more, what would you like more powers over housing more power over transport in 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 the years to come
1: All of it oh absolutely um yeah. you know we we should have the ability to build um council homes we should have the ability to regulate uh housing so that you know we don't ever see a repeat of the appalling case of the two-year-old in Rochdale who died because of the poor state of 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 his home um, we should have all of the levers of power to create a London style uh, public transport system. And by that, I mean having overland rail uh, within our, w- within our system. The big missing piece at the moment is, is skills, actually. In fact, if you were to say to me, what's the biggest risk to growth in Greater Manchester in the next decade? I would say it's, it's the poor t- approach to technical education that we've Long had in this country because the supply of talent is becoming more and more and more important in uh, city regions like ours, and the skill system isn 't capable of delivering it and matching the needs of the modern Greater Manchester economy with the um, with, with the technical education system so that one has to be uh, solved and i 'm pitching at the moment to the government as part of a, a negotiation over, over a new devolution deal for Greater Manchester for the power to create the country's first integrated technical education system, because I think that is critical if we're to um, it, to maintain growth over the coming decade.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, if you were to get those powers, uh, you would need more resources. And presumably you would want some of that money to come from central government. And you know uh, from your time in the Treasury, the Treasury is neurotic about giving control of the money away. Do you think somehow or other, that barrier is going to be leapt over in the next, if there is a Labour government? Or are you worried that when or if there is a Labour government, some of this enthusiasm in opposition at Westminster subsides? Because as you know, in the build up to 97, there was quite a lot of talk of giving power away. And then, you know, the Treasury thought, no, hold on a second, we've got to hold the reins here.
1: Yeah, I think that um, is a strong sort of impulse, isn't it, in the Whitehall system. It it doesn't want to give, but it doesn't like people answering them back as we did during COVID, and it doesn't like uh, giving uh, giving power away. But for me, I think they're going to have to because increasingly in a complex world where we now find ourselves post-Brexit, post-pandemic, isn't it clear, Steve, that Whitehall can't cope with this, that it hasn't got the answers? That's why it seems at the moment to be in a permanent sense of, I think it's it's struggling. And it's because the wiring of the country isn't right. Um, we are not wired up to work properly at the moment. You know, we, we are overheated in one part of the country in in SW1 and we're not, the power is not, distributed in a way that supports a more balanced approach uh, to to, to building the economy. I know the Treasury will always have that sort of, oh, no one knows how to spend money except Dawson, But in my experience, national government wastes far more money on initiatives and pet projects than local government. Definitely. I think the kind of nature of Westminster and Whitehall, leads to the waste of money you know the kind of merry-go-round of ministers coming in in and out of departments new initiatives and then they go they go quiet because the minister has changed and someone else has got a different project that is a recipe for wasting money and if they if they did actually um take more out of that system and and give more freedom to local authorities and combined authorities like the one i lead i think public money would be spent much better on a more long-term basis And how would something like Transport
0: for London work, where you had control over the overground in, well, presumably the whole of the North West? It couldn't just be you ultimately accountable, presumably. It would have to be, I don't know, the mayor of Liverpool involved as well or whatever to sort out trains from manchester to yeah. liverpool manchester to Leeds, which as you say on a daily basis is a complete nightmare yeah, uh, how would it work because at least london you've got the one mayor ultimately accountable for all of this uh, presumably it would have to be a bigger range of people accountable for it to work
1: in your area it could work similar to the london principle so just to explain i've taken the decision to put buses back under public control absolutely so yeah going to ask about that that's going to happen yeah. later this year so that creates the basis for a london style public transport system because if we are controlling the fare box of the buses which we're not at the moment but we will be uh, in a, a, a matter of a few months we can then integrate the bus fare box with the tram fare box and you can bring in that London-style system, um, well, was called Oyster originally, but that's that's what you can do. And the daily cap on what people can spend. The phase after that, Steve, would be then to bring in uh, overground rail, and so TfL overground in our world would be TfGM overground. So right, so it would just be your area, your your Greater Manchester. Initially, yeah. so there are some commuter rail yeah. services here that sort of just very much serve the Greater Manchester economy, even if they originate slightly outside. So there's a Buxton line, for instance, which is a line used heavily by uh, commuters into Greater Manchester, but obviously they live outside of our our boundary. So one of my pitches to the government at the moment is, put that within the B network. That's going to be the name of our integrated system. So that if you tap in in Buxton, you're kind of immediately entering the Greater Manchester cap when it comes to the, the, the fare cap. In the future, I think it's perfectly possible that the Liverpool City Region Combined Authority and Greater Manchester Combined Authority could co-manage uh, services between the two the two cities, or, or going the other direction with Tracy Braben in, in West Yorkshire. You know, we would sort of manage other lines on a partnership basis if they, you know, if they obviously link uh, link the two cities. What is obvious to anybody right now is that rail in this country needs massive reform. And, you know, we need to move away from the fragmentation of privatisation into more local, uh, local control. And actually, if you look at Mersey Rail, which is the only rail system in the country that is under local control, it, it is the highest performing of the lot. So the evidence is, is quite clearly there that this makes sense.
0: I want to ask you about how you've gone about uh, taking the buses back into public ownership. But as a general question. From your experience as being mayor, do you think Labour overall nationally has been too coy about some of these issues to do with ownership? I mean, when you look back at busty regulation, not even the instigators in the 1980s could claim it to be a success. And yet, actually, there hasn't been a great focus on why it has been such a calamity um, in terms of. There are times, perhaps, when you put the case for public ownership, as you have uh, in your role as mayor. But, but but Labour, you don't hear much about this as a basic issue.
1: Yeah, I, I think sometimes the Westminster perspective t- doesn't focus on the day-to-day reality of a system that's not under public control. I think you know it's, it's too remote from that, isn't it? But if you put yourself in my shoes, when you're the mayor and you've got people saying, my bus didn't turn up, or you know, they're going to cut this route. When you realise you can't do anything about it if they do that, which is the reality of bus services across large parts of England, of course you start talking about public control because you can't guarantee the fares, you can't guarantee the routes, um, you, you can't uh, guarantee the level of service in the current deregulated system. But then if you sort of apply it more broadly... Uh, Steve, you look at housing and you look at the way, obviously, housing stock that was under public control in the 1980s was sold off. And then you see the condition of some of that housing now in the private rented sector. You say, well, hang on a minute. Something's gone wrong here. I think what mayors are beginning to do across England is roll back the 1980s. We are, all of us, looking at more control, public control of transport, more public control of housing. I spoke to you a moment ago about creating the country's first integrated technical education system. You know, the fragmentation of every entity being sort of thrown into competition with each other. Th- these things have not worked. They really haven't worked. I would say with you know, these reforms about uh, you know, introducing competition and the market into all of these essential public services, it's actually empowered the, the, the vested interests over the public, actually, is what it's done and led to a very poor service being given, often at a very high price.
0: At a national level, empowerment is quite a popular word, you know, power to the people and so on. But it's never used in relation to, as you say, the day-to-day reality whereas from your experience you can actually apply the arguments about ownership and show how day-to-day lives and people can be empowered through this
1: change it's interesting let me give you an example related to climate steve because i think this makes the point very well if you don't control the bus fleet how can you develop a timetable to decarbonize it If others are deciding when they're going to replace those vehicles, how, as a country, can we be certain that we will have a net, you know, a a, a zero carbon public transport system by 2050 if it's other entities that are making the decisions about when uh, and how fleet is replaced? By going to the approach that we're going to, we will decide what buses are on our roads. And therefore, we will decide the pace of change towards decarbonisation. On so many levels, it makes sense you know it makes sense in terms of keeping people 's fares low, but also in terms of obviously rising to the climate change. Now you are probably better placed
0: to make a judgment on this than anyone else. Do you think the national labor leadership on this issue, this area of who controls what empowerment and so on are being too cautious, or do you think these arguments can 't be won at a national level, and it has to be driven by people like you from Greater Manchester?
1: I've noticed a real change. Um, you know, there is a much more enthusiastic narrative coming out of the Labour Party at a national level now around, around devolution and particularly English devolution, because I think there is a different brand of devolution uh, being uh, practised here than we see, certainly in Scotland, but to a degree in Wales uh, as well. But this- what about ownership and all of that? Yeah, it's closer to people, isn't it? You know what we're doing here. We are. We, we've got policy making uh, powers, but we're very close to people. I've just come from an event this afternoon of the Greater Manchester Homelessness Action Network, where we're debating policy around homelessness prevention with people who've been homeless, and and that is something that Whitehall can't do. You know, you cannot involve people in decision making in that kind of way, uh, and and that's what I think makes English devolution as it's beginning to develop really exciting, it genuinely allows you to do things differently and better and and does provide something of an answer to some of the frustrations that people feel with the Whitehall and Westminster system. So I I really like what what I'm hearing. I I think Gordon Brown's uh, review has really sort of laid the right foundations. But but I would say, you know, actually for the next, Uh, Labour government to be a success you know work with these new combined authorities because we can help you deliver more quickly you know that that's the way we need to start thinking uh, about it that there's some sort of competition going on between regional uh, decision making and national well no that we we can really make this work for both sides and and in the process make uh, make Westminster more functional as well. Do you think
0: your experience as mayor has made you more radical?
1: I I was always to the left of New Labour in that, you know, I, I often had, well, I, you know, when I was health secretary, you might remember, Steve, I, I was quite clear that we'd let the private sector too far into the NHS. And as I kind of grew in confidence, I guess, as a politician, I started to say those things more. But I was also a team player and I get criticised for this. I was loyal to Blair, Brown, Miliband, <laughs> Corbyn, because I always... Want to see a Labour government, but because of that, people think therefore you, you know, you're, you're um, you just dot around when the, with the way the wind blows, and you'll just you'll sign up to to anybody. Well, I think what people have seen in in my role is in Greater Manchester is actually what I think, um, because it's not filtered by any three line whip or any lines to take. I am calling things from here in a way that I think is right for for this city region. And yeah, you know, we're doing some really progressive things on housing, transport, uh, but also when it comes to policing, we've we, we take a you know a firm line on things as well because that's, that's what our residents uh, want to see when it comes comes to crime. So I, I I think it's freed me up this role to answer your question. It's freed me up to to be quite radical because I am actually quite radical. I'm quite you know I guess I can be traditional on some issues around crime and law and order, but I'm economically quite left-wing and always have been.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it, that um, in terms of public projection, uh, you feel more at ease in this role than being, you know, to go back to our earlier discussion of where power lies, in terms of projecting your own ideas, you feel much more at ease doing so in this role than obviously in cabinet when there's collective responsibility, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Oh, if I could just just you know add a bit to that because what you've just touched on there, I think, is goes to the heart of this of this role. You know, if I do things like this now, this podcast, or you know, the Today program tomorrow morning, it's it's a world of difference when you are just speaking directly to what you know to be right for your area, and you're doing it with the confidence of you know perhaps I've been around a little bit as I have, and I've got come to learn. Quite, quite a bit about how this country works or doesn't work that's a world of difference when you're speaking in that way than when you're kind of second guessing yourself because there's a line to take and you're wondering you might upset your colleague who's you know in the shadow cabinet and and I think this is sometimes why Westminster politicians don't come over you know they they, they kind of they've got to be cautious and tentative and they're always thinking through everything who might i upset here and that's a barrier between them and connecting with the with the public i'm not blaming them because i did it and you what we all do it when we're in when we're in that world but it's why i think this really allowing english devolution now to come through and find its voice it's just going to create a healthier politics in this in this country
0: We were talking uh, before the interview began. I mean, you've had a a long political career. I mean, you're still youthful and look youthful, but you've had a long career uh, beginning, actually. I mean, you were sort of there in 97 as a special advisor uh, before rising up the parliamentary ranks to the cabinet. Now, I remember you being a special advisor to the then Culture Secretary, Chris Smith, after the 97 landslide. There's a lot of talk at the moment about could this be another 97? As someone who was there for ninety-seven, albeit not an MP, but a special advisor afterwards, um, what's your reading of the political mood now compared with then nationally? Sorry, I know we've been talking a lot about your brief as a mayor, but yeah. but the, the, you, you've be, been so involved in national politics.
1: How oh. do you compare the two? It f- feels very different to me. There are some similarities, but I think the context is is really different. I don't kind of sense the optimism around at the moment just I'm not making that uh, as a, a, a any comment on the, the political parties it's more that I don't know people are quite despondent I think and there's a kind of sense that some that there's a sense of terminal decline isn't there around some of the way things are not working and I think that makes it quite hard actually for for all politicians at, at the moment it does feel a very different mood uh, I do think think people want change, um, as they did in 1997, but I, I think it's more fundamental uh, now, and, and I really believe that um, politicians need to kind of kind of sense this and, and, and answer it with real uh, real answers. You know, if I think of the issues that I've worked on over the years, particularly social care, you know, this kind of idea that you can just Manage an issue like that at a general election and then kick it down the road, and that people are not ha- are not going to have that anymore. You know, there's just there's a sense, I, I think, a growing sense that, that that there needs to be a you know a real change, and I, that in 90, wasn't like that in '97. I don't think there was a sense that a change of government could change the country, and it did to a large degree, and I'm very proud of what that Labour government achieved, but I I don't think. At this moment in time, people think just a change of government will solve everything. I think it needs to be a change of the way we run things in this country that, that, that is what I'm hearing where, where I am.
0: Yeah, that new Labour, very cautious incrementalism, which Tony Blair made seem very exciting. It, it needs what you're saying, it needs more than that in the context of now.
1: Well, I think Keir was sort of. Going there, wasn't he? In the, the response to Gordon Brown's review and some of the you know, the the way in which um, I think he's used a phrase that I've used before, rewiring the country. I think that's what it needs. Genuinely, what what it needs. We're not set up for success at the moment. We're not set up to allow the North of England to flourish, if you like. You know, it's we're, we're just not wired to, for those things to happen. And you know, people. Are increasingly impatient now of the failure that they feel is inflicted upon them. So, I don't think you know it, it is more. There's a deeper sense here of of decline, and and I think it's a different context in which the next general election will need to be fought. And it's a hard one for Labour, isn't it? You know, because they've got to stay credible and put forward a you know a costed program and, and all the rest of it. But it's it's not incrementalism that that is needed here. It, it is genuine change, and then winning public support for that change.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's a, it seems to me a very different context from
1: '97,
0: so yeah. Finally, we're out. To, we, we, we're out of time, but uh, you're a passionate Everton supporter. <laughs> You've got a new manager. Yeah. Are you excited after? <laughs> uh, you beat Arsenal the other day so it, it must it must feel exciting but it's been such a traumatic season for Everton sorry for podcast listeners who are interested but I just know how passionate you are about it oh so. was it when I used that phrase
1: <laughs> terminal decline that you thought of Everton oh yeah that? yeah like, were well, you yeah. thinking of Everton <laughs> <laughs> you no know, oh I I love that club so much honestly I think you know that don't you and and I was there yeah. on Saturday and I, I really felt for Frank Lampard because he, he did a brilliant job last year in you know, turning a, a terrible situation around. And I feel for him because things just didn't go his way this year for one reason or another. Um, but it has felt like we, you know, this, you know, it has been a bit of a, a metaphor for the country, maybe that, you know, things not working. Well, it felt like this grand old club was sort of, uh, but, but something may just have changed. And, uh, you know, a new. I, I, I said before that you know maybe a, could, could a, a change of leader change change the country. Well, in this case, change of leader can definitely change a club because it felt different to be at Goodison Park on uh, on Saturday. And I think Sean Dyche and Everton are, are a good fit. We'll see what um, will the rest of the season holds in store. But you know what, Steve, this is the emotions of this are hard for all of us because Goodison Park is on its on its way out. You know. The grand old lady is, you know, got a couple of years at most left, and a new stadium is taking shape on the the banks of the Royal Blue Mersey. And if we can just get there with Premier League status, that that will give me hope um, that you know that all things can be turned around, and uh, you know we, we 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 will certainly have Evertonian hope again. But yeah, been a tough been a tough time to be a toffee.
0: Yeah, politics, football, hope despair it has got a yeah. lot hasn't it both of them
1: <laughs> it's all there isn't but, it but you know <laughs> I, I get on so well with Steve Rotherham the the of of Liverpool City region and I do think yeah the north of England is rising again you know I don't know if you feel that yeah but we do you know things are changing here there's a new optimism amidst the difficulties I was talking about people are more confident about the north and its voice and its place than, than any time in my lifetime
0: That was uh, Andy Burnham. I think he's he's a really interesting figure. When he says he has always been to the left of New Labour, I think that's very interesting. I think what he says about you know this this whole devolution agenda is 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 fascinating. Uh, there are arguments we've explored it on this podcast uh, for actually quite a degree of centralisation to make sure you get the resources in the right places, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I thought his argument about how, uh, in a way, Britain could become, or certainly England with its structures, becomes more radical uh, because, you uh, you know, Andy Burnham can make the case for public ownership of the buses and to highlight the craziness of the deregulation that took place in the 1980s, fearlessly, because he knows it's popular. Uh, he's there and has the direct engagement and can sort of cite this policy around transport to highlight a sort of wider argument about ownership. But at Westminster, there is this, you know, certainly on the Labour side, fearful timidity of um, actually taking on some of these arguments. So the closer you get to the voters, ironically, it makes it easier to make these Arguments. Anyway, uh, I thought it was a very interesting interview. We've got a fascinating one coming up uh, next week as well. But thank you to Andy Burnham for taking part. Thank you all for listening. And yeah, let's gather again to try and make sense of it all in these uh, crazy times. Thanks so much. Bye.